We are looking at Exodus 20, verse 17. This is the Tenth Commandment. We are finishing our series this morning on the Ten Commandments. And just to let you know where we're going, next week, John Sackett, who's right here in the front, wave, he's preached for us before. We we're very glad to have him come next week and preach from the Matthew. You knew that, right? <laughs> so, now we're very thankful to have uh, John uh, pitch in and preach when he can. And um, So we'll have that sermon next week, May the 1st. This summer we'll be looking again at the Psalms like we did last summer. Part of the reason, you know, the obvious reason is the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible, very rich, but also practically uh, as people travel in the summers, it'll be, I think, somewhat nice to have each sermon self-contained and not in a series, so we'll be doing that. But this week we are looking at the Tenth Commandment, and this is the commandment that really, in some ways, explodes the other nine, not necessarily for the Christian, but for someone who's trying to live a moral life and who's trying to follow the Ten Commandments on their own, it's the Tenth Commandment that's going to really ruin that project because it's going to show them it's impossible without a Savior. So that's what we're going to see this morning. Look at uh, chapter 20, verse 17 of Exodus. You shall not covet your neighbor's... You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that it is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your law. Lord, we know that the law itself cannot give us life, but you through your Spirit have given us new life. And now we can look at these Ten Commandments and your whole law with joy, knowing that we are not condemned, and knowing there is hope and knowing that there can be flourishing as we walk with you. So Holy Spirit, I pray for your presence to open and illumine the scripture to our, all of our minds and hearts, that we would see clearly your intent in this commandment. In your name we pray. Amen. It's hard to end a prayer that sincere with the, the illustration I'm about to give, but I'm going to make the transition. Tommy Boy. Not necessarily a movie I recommend, although it's not bad. But like a lot of comedies, I don't, I don't remember the entire movie, but there's a couple of scenes that stand out. Uh, it's a movie with Chris Farley and David Spade. Chris Farley's father has passed away, uh, and Tommy, played by Chris Farley, has inherited the, the business, or at least he's the salesperson in the business, and he's going to go out and try to learn how to be a salesman, uh, but he's not doing very well. And there's a scene in a cafe with David Spade and Tommy, Chris Farley, talking, and the waitress walks up and says, what will it be? And, and, there's, and he orders chicken wings. And she says, sorry, the kitchen's closed. It has to be cold food. And then he sort of sarcastically says, bring me some sugar packets. That'll be fine. And then he just says, wait, what's your name? She says, Helen. And he says, well, Helen, let me ask you a question. And he starts to explain his issue with sales. He says, see, I'm supposed to be a salesman. And what happens is I go into the office, and I'm really, really, I'm not, I'm not going to do a good Chris Farley impression. Just FYI, it's not going to be great. I go into the office and I want to sell, and it's like this biscuit. And he picks up like this biscuit muffin thing. He says, it's like the, I think it's a muffin. It's like this muffin. And I really want it. And I say, hi, little muffin. You're so naughty. And he starts poking the muffin. He says, but the more I want the muffin, the sale, the more I look at it, the more I destroy it. He just crumbles it up on the ground, on the, on the table. And he said, that's why I'm so bad at sales. And he, and he does a lot better job of it. But she looks at him and says, you're messed up. You are. Me you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go turn the fryers on. I'm going to make you some chicken. And she walks away. And David Spade said, do you see what just happened? 
you just changed before our very eyes. You just became a good salesperson. What happened? He said, well, I knew that if I didn't get chicken wings, there's a pizza in the trunk. I'm okay. I knew I had an out. <laughs> and so the moral of that story is like, like we do this with Tommy. We take things that we want and we, we fixate on them. We, we think by making them the object of our affections, the things we want will actually achieve them, but we're actually crushing them and crumbling. And not only that, we're crumbling our own lives. And that's what coveting is. Coveting is wanting maybe the right thing, but with the wrong motive, and therefore it's the wrong thing we're after. And what we really should be after is Christ longing for him, and we'll get the things that we want thrown in. That is the things he wants us to want. So the, so the idea this morning is that we're going to see coveting is this wrong desire, but when Jesus is the object, object of our affection, we are set free from this desperate desire to sort of Long for the wrong thing. I don't know how else. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to unpack. Longing for the wrong things will be uh, removed from our lives to some degree as we long for Jesus. So what is coveting? We're going to really look at two broad things. Defining coveting and then defining the opposite. Okay? So what is coveting? When you look at the, t- uh, the 10th commandment here in Exodus 20, you'll be struck with the fact that up until now, Every one of the commands has been somewhat surface, somewhat. The commands that deal with God, of course, lend themselves to the heart. But really, thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, or steal, or bear false witness are fairly surface commandments. Now, as you know, we've already talked about, they obviously, and Jesus exposes in the New Testament, our hearts are obviously included in those. But really, it's the Tenth Commandment that you can't get around your heart. In fact, the Tenth Commandment seems to repeat earlier commandments, right? Basically, don't want your neighbor's stuff or his wife. Don't steal and don't commit adultery. It's essentially the repeated commandment. But now it's dealing with your longing, your your wanting, your coveting of it. And so the question is, what is the correlation between the outward sin and the desire for it that is being exposed here? In our modern era, maybe our postmodern era, there really is this idea that what you do in private shouldn't affect me. And a lot of people, I think even in this room, if we're not careful, kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of true. So as long as what you do, even if I think it's wrong, is done behind closed doors, I should be okay with it. Now, from a political perspective, I'm not getting into politics. Maybe that's true. But I just want to make the case that we need to at least grasp what someone does behind closed doors is connected to what they do publicly, somehow. A couple of silly ways to explain it. You go to your a guest's house and it looks immaculately clean and something falls on the ground and you look under the couch and it's really filthy. Do you think to yourself, well, they're mostly clean? Or do you think they're hiding? They're really filthy people. Okay, that's probably our house. No, just kidding. It's not my life. It's me. My, my stuff. Okay, a little bit more sinister. If you found out that a coworker had a little bedroom in their house and they had photos of you, all over it, all different ages, and they were mapping out your life, and they were following every move you made, but it's privately, and they're never going to tell you about it. Is that okay? They're never going to tell you. In other words, what you would realize if, you, if that were true is you would say, that person is deranged, and most likely it's going to come out publicly at some point, point. that scares me. Okay, so I'm just trying to make the point that the Bible is saying what goes on in the heart really does affect outward life. In fact, 
um, one of the commentators really went out of his way to say, this is more than just a fleeting thought. Coveting is a heart, it's a relationship to something. It's a, a longing, right? You, you desperately want. It's a sense of desire. So strong, this commentator says, you can see it in the eyes. And we've looked at Matthew 5 a few times. I saw talk about the heart. You know, Matthew 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, as we've done this, what we've really sort of come to is this idea that murder starts in the heart and that adultery starts in the heart. But if you actually look at what Jesus says, it's interesting. There's sort of a middle-of-the-road step that I want to highlight. With anger, he says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, but I say do not be angry. And it's, it's tempting to say, well, okay, anger is usually an internal thing. But the two examples are external, insults and calling your brother a fool. He even goes on to say, if you're leaving a gift at the altar and you know your brother has something against you, in other words, in anger you've said something, you need to go and ask for forgiveness. So the point is, coveting is in the heart, but oftentimes it, there are these steps it takes outwardly, right? Just as murder is anger. That's the connection I'm making. Also with lust. This may be a little bit more of a stretch. Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Most of the time, the way I've talked about that, and kind of the way we think about that is looking at it, almost like looking at an image. That the person may have no idea you've looked at them, but you've committed adultery in your heart. And that's probably true, but it's very possible he means you've looked and that woman knows you've looked at her. In fact, it might even mean she may have even been okay with that. So we aren't sure of the setting, but sometimes the, the, the coveting is not just something that's private, but it even makes its way into public life in some ways, through the ways you look, the ways you act, the ways you think. I'm just showing the connection that coveting has a natural flow into our behavior. Okay? So what is coveting? Um, the word, uh, probably the most famous place in the New Testament we see the word coveting emerge is in Romans 7. Paul says, when the, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if I had not been for the law, I would have I would have not known sin. For I would have not known that it was what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And the question is, why does Paul choose coveting there? And, the, and, and of course, there's a, a myriad of answers, but one of the real clear answers is that you can't escape it. That, again, Paul was a Pharisee who, who naturally believed he fulfilled the law. But as he, as he moved in his faith and became a Christian, and, and again, one commentator argues that maybe there was even a period where he was starting to warm up to the concept of Christ, though we don't know. But one of the first things that had to happen is he realized, I break the law. And the law that really showed him he breaks it is the law of coveting. So what is coveting? I was talking to one of my sons recently, and I was kind of feeling it out. And I was probably doing a poor job, and he said, can I not want something? Is it wrong to desire things? And this child would go remain unnamed, so that way I haven't called anybody out in Herman Coleman. Okay. So the question is, is it wrong to desire? And the answer for what, what the Greek word epithumia, am I saying that right, Thomas? Epithumia, you want to say it? He's going to let it go. Oh, thank you. Gracious, charity. It's an over-desire, but it's more than that. It's... It's just a wrong desire. I, I'm trying, I've, I've tried to process this. It's not like there's this spectrum of desire. Zero is I don't really care. A hundred is I really, really want it. And somewhere on that spectrum, you become coveting. That's not the issue. 
The issue is that I am now wanting anything on any level to complete me. Somehow that thing will settle my heart in any way possible. That is a covenant's desire. Does that make sense? Now you might say, um, in Exodus 20, it was all wrong things, right? Someone else's wife, someone else's land, okay? But in that context, the idea is it's not wrong to want a wife, right? It's not wrong to want land or an ox. But what's wrong is to want a, an ox or a piece of property or a wife that isn't yours. And so there's something in the heart of the fallen person that is not satisfied with what God has brought us. And that is really the, the la- I think that's the language of the flesh. We talk about the fact that we have the old man, we're sinful. One of the most obvious ways to see the existence of that flesh is the fact that we're constantly searching for something to complete us. Even in the Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me. Oh, it's so romantic. No, it's going gonna, it's gonna to screw you up. Jesus completes you, and she's great, and you love her, and you know, maybe she helps you, you know, that doesn't write well. That doesn't work well in Hollywood. So you just have these lines. You complete me. But that's, and someone's going to argue later with me in an email, like, Ryan, I think that's actually a good line. Okay. But what I think, I, what it's getting at is we want the right things for the wrong reasons, which makes them the wrong things. Does that make sense? I say I want a job. That's fine. I need a job. But when I'm not satisfied until I get that job, then maybe I'm, and God hasn't provided that job as of right now, it's not a guarantee, and yet I'm anxious and it's affecting my emotions, maybe the way I treat people, the way I'm feeling toward the Lord, at that point have I begun to covet, saying I demand that thing. Right? And how different is that than wanting another person's wife or home, etc.? Right? Okay. In Colossians 3.5, Paul talks about coveting this way. He says, so, where, that is not the right, I'm in James, that's why that doesn't look right. I had these little markers made and everything. Here we go. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then also in Ephesians, he says, in Ephesians 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk. I'm going to jump down just a second. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. Now, before I I explain that, understand, Paul has just explained justification by faith and the fact that you are saved by Christ alone. So when you read those verses, be careful. Don't don't think, well, gee, I've coveted, so I can't be a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying people who walk in that way as if that were who they are. Okay. But the point he's making is, and this is a big point, coveting and idolatry are linked. Because for me to covet something is to automatically say, God, I don't trust what you've provided. Here's my land. I see my neighbor's land. God gave me that land. He didn't give me this land. I want that land. Therefore, God is not ruling over my life at this point in this way. Does that make sense? 
if I'm committing a type of idolatry. God is essentially being removed from the equation. So here's where we're going. Every one of us lives and breathes idolatry and lives and breathes coveting on some level. I'm not trying to condemn you, but what I'm trying to say is the reason this is such a difficult topic is it's easy to go, well, do I covet? And it's really like the fish, the fish going, is there really such a thing as water? It's so common that I don't know that we know how to operate without it. And I'm going to prove that to you, hopefully, in the next few moments. In Matthew 22, uh, the lawyer tries to trap Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And famously, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And if you examine those two commandments, they really are the first and the tenth expounded upon. Right? Loving your neighbor as yourself is to never want to covet or harm them. Right? Covet anything they have or harm them or take anything from them. And to love the Lord your God is to want everything he gives you and, and thank him for it as a gift. Is that so what happens, that's the positive side of coveting. So therefore, here's a test. How do I know if I'm coveting or not? Take anything that you want, okay, and ask this question. How am I glorifying God with this thing I'm, at, I'm interested in? Am I, is this something I'm glorifying God with? Or secondly, how can I benefit or love my neighbor with this pursuit, with this desire, with this thing? That's a great test of coveting. Now, here's the trick. We are very good at tricking ourselves. I remember a youth group girl years and years ago saying, Ryan, I'm going to be a record producer, and I'm going to be really rich, but here's the good news. I'm going to give all my money or a lot of my money away. And so what she was doing was both wanting to be rich but asking me if that was okay because she was going to give a good chunk of it away. Now, it's not wrong to be rich. Trust me. I, I, I really want you to hear me say that. But it is wrong to long for riches, right? It's wrong for that to become my pursuit. And, and what's interesting is, as I've grown, I'm not that old, but I'm getting older, my peers are becoming like doctors and lawyers, etc. Emily and I have had several friends early on in our 20s, when we all made the same income, say, oh, no matter how much money I give, I'm going to live on, we had one, you know, we're going to live on this amount. And we've since watched most of these folks like, eh, you know, this amount, eh, you know, this amount. Now, we, we do the same thing. It's a struggle. But my point is, in these tests, be careful of the flesh convincing you. Oh, I'm doing this for God's glory. The question is this. Is your motivation for everything in life to serve and love your Father in heaven? Can anyone say yes to that? And that's a, I could just stop right now and we could spend the rest of our life on earth trying to unplug or unpack that concept. right? Because the truth is, that's not really our motive almost ever. I hate to say that, but it's kind of true. right? I wish it were more true. From myself. I mean, when I have a goal or a desire, how I'll, even to read my Bible, I'll be, I, oftentimes I'm like, I need to read my Bible more. You know why? So that when one of you asks a question, I know where to find it. Not so I know my Heavenly Father more, you know, so I get to read His Word. In other words, I've got to baptize every longing I have in the blood of Christ and say, Lord, is this for your glory or is it for my own? What would that lead to? What would that, um, what kind of a lifestyle does that look like? What is, what, what makes that 
how can we tell if we're actually, this is the third test. The first two are hard to get. Here's the third test. And I'm borrowing this from Francis Schaeffer, who, by the way, in his book, True Spirituality, and Doug kind of put, we, I've read it, but Doug and I were talking through it. I thought, I'm going to go back and read it again. Um, we're actually considering doing it for a small group, so heads up on that. Um, but, man, he really does a great job. Abby, good job. He does a great job uh, plugging this out. He starts with coveting and just moves all the way through it. Um, and, and, I mean, I highly recommend it. But one of the things he says is, is the opposite of coveting is thankfulness. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't like to preach like that because it sounds like a Hallmark card. And if you know me, I don't want to ever sound like a Hallmark card. So my job now is to make you understand what I just said in such a way that it's actually cool and not a Hallmark card. Okay, thankfulness. Um, when you're thankful, you're in the moment. We were at the arts festival, and I didn't get to see as much art as I might be, maybe would have liked, but there was one plaque, and we wanted me to look at or one booth that had all quotes. And it was ama- None of these were biblical, but most of the quotes were about, or a lot of them, one of the themes was like, live out the day. Like one was W.C. Fields, he said, uh, in the first thing in the morning, you should smile. That way you got it out of the way. That was kind of a funny one. Um, but another one that I thought was really cute, Hallmark, Winnie the Pooh, and I'm going to butcher this because you can't take photos with the arts festival. They think you're going to go home and like, make the art. I'm going to make this out of metal. This is awesome. Anyway, one of them is Winnie the Pooh saying, Piglet, what day is it today? Or no, what day is it? And Piglet's answer, why, I believe it's today. And Pooh's response, oh, I like that day very much. So we're supposed to live in the day. Okay, that's those quotes. But thankfulness is living content in the moment. And an epidemic in my heart, I'm going to confess to you, with the thought that possibly some of you might struggle with this as well, is that I am not content with what I have in the moment. I'm constantly scanning the horizon for what I need to gain. Even godliness is not a pursuit that should make me unthankful in the moment. Right? Am I resting in what Christ has done for me? That's the first and foremost conclusion that we need to come to, to then want to grow in godliness as a response of worship. So I'm going to read a few verses that I will be honest with you, and these are ones that Schaefer goes through that I tend to hallmark eyes, that I think we need to be come back to. Here's what, you'll see what I mean. Ephesians 5. Um, we'd already read verse 3, but verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That just sounds like a parent to a child. Be thankful. And then, you know, oh, you know, like, do you, you ever read it like that? Or do you read that as a command or, more importantly, as a promise? That if I understand the gospel, I should be filled with thanksgiving. How about Philippians 4, 6? Do not be anxious about anything, as you all know this verse, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, that's fascinating. Most of the times when I'm anxious and remember to pray, it's usually anxious prayer. Lord, please, you know. But he, Paul is telling me that if I get the reality of who Christ is, if he's guarding my heart, that I should be able to pray with thanksgiving. Lord, if it be your will. But if not, I'm completely content with what I have. Now, here's the problem that goes through most of our minds. But Ryan, you have no idea what I'm going through. 
What about that? And that's the hardest thing about contentment and thanksgiving. And I will just say from a theological perspective, please understand that it's not easy because we forget that this life is, is temporal. But something that Schaefer brings up in, in the book is when you come to Christ, when I come to Christ, we are coming to a risen Savior. He actually died on a cross in real time, in real space. He actually rose. And you and I, if we are united to him, actually have died to this life, and to all the ways we measure ourselves and others. And we've entered into a new world, a new life. And one of the biggest mistakes I think we make as Christians is we really want to walk both stories. We want heaven. We want the future glory. We want justification and all that. But man, we really want our reputation and our stuff and our goals. And one of the things that Schaefer says is when we come to Christ, we have been called into the battle. There's a battle raging. And he says, our job is to say, God, where do you want me? And if, that, if he wants me to be lowly, I'm going to be lowly. I'm going to that part of the battlefront. If he wants me to be the wealthiest, I'll be the wealthiest. Um, and one perfect example of this is Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. Paralyzed as a young woman. And has served God with her life as a quadriplegic who paints with her, with her, her mouth and writes, has written amazing books. And she has said, I now can see that this was necessary for my ministry to glorify God. Wow. With thankfulness. Are we supposed to be thankful for all the problems that come our way? That's not the point. But we recognize that God is sovereign and he can use us even in our difficulties. And maybe I should say this, especially if every one of us had what we wanted in life, it would be a really boring story. We'd all have the same kind of nice car and the nice house and the nice vacation spot. I mean, I know there's a little bit of difference, but it would be a very boring existence. But God has called us to different places, and the question for you and I is, can we accept our place in life? In Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, I, I, I know that passage. I don't remember the thanksgiving part. Do you? I've quoted 4.6, Philippians 4.6 from this pulpit, only to find out from Sam Shiler that night that I forgot to say with thanksgiving. Something about, you remember that? So, yeah, youth group. You're like, Ryan, you forgot the with thanksgiving. I'm like, oh, I didn't say that. Anyway, and you were being very kind about it. It was not a, it was a very gentle but my point is, there's something in me that doesn't want to be thankful, genuinely thankful. But yet, that's the way we came to Christ, right? If we've come to Christ, we've come to the fact that we are sinful in and of ourselves, and that there's nothing in us that deserves salvation. And yet, we desperately don't want that to be true. So we have this, as I've already said, this double life. Our spiritual-minded life, where we say things like, I'm a sinner, and then our real world life where we're like, I look good, I'm trying to be cool, and I'm trying to do this and do that. And what Christ wants is one life. Him. He wants us to be found in Him. Our life is now hidden with Christ. And that should backfill into everything we do. And the chief language of, the, of our resistance to that is our coveting. So 
So how can we possibly move in that direction? I'm going to repeat some things I've said before. When Paul in Galatians 3 says, you foolish Galatian who bewitched you, it was before your very eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Why does he remind them of the crucifixion? Because it was necessary, and it was real, and they were participants of it. They never saw it. Physically, they never heard it. In fact, what's so fascinating about that concept is in, you can be a person at an event and miss it, and, or you can be a person not at an event and care more about it and know more about it than the people there. Right? right? You go to concerts and you hold your phone up, and you just look at your phone. I can look at your video and be as present as you were. Right? I mean, that's a, maybe a bad example. But, you know, you see people up there, I'm always like, put your phone down and enjoy the concert. The Galatians had never seen Jesus Christ crucified, but they knew they were sinful. They knew they needed a Savior. And when that story was proclaimed, it was as if they were there. And for you and I, it's as if we were actually there. Jesus actually hung on a cross. Schaefer says, if you rubbed your fingers across the wood, you'd get a splinter. Okay, let me try to make that a little bit more practical then. A couple of things that came to me. One is, how many of you, on a show of hands, have ever, just for a brief moment, I need honesty, a brief split-second thought that it would be kind of nice, just to be honest, to enter the witness protection program? Have you thought it? Thank you, Mark. Any, thank you. I mean, just for, not like I want to leave my life, but just why does that every now and then go, that would be kind of nice. Because all of a sudden, I get a restart. I'm not measured by all this stuff in my life right now. Okay, this one's easier. Everyone in, a, in the room wants to win the lottery, right? Because, okay, Thomas doesn't, thank you. All of us want to win the lottery. Not all of us, some of us. But if, you're, if you really dig down, it's because it immediately takes away most of your responsibility. You're free. I can tell my boss what I want or whatever. I've got great news. You can tell your boss anything you want at any time. It may not go well for you, whether you have a lot of money or not. Here's a little bit more of a morbid one that many movies are kind of made out of this idea. If you went to your funeral and you observed the entire situation, you know, it's like a, it's a wonderful life, though he never actually sees his funeral. But then you come back and all of a sudden you're back in your life again. Would you be a little bit different? Would you feel a little bit different? Maybe not quite as stressed by some of the things that bother you maybe for like about 13 minutes. So we have this in Scripture, but it's a little more beautiful. Paul in 2 Corinthians explains that he knows a man himself in Christ who 14 years before was caught up in the third heaven. Another way of saying, in the throne room. I was with God. Whether in body, I don't know. Or spirit only. But he says, and I know this man was caught up into paradise and he heard things that cannot be told, which, may not, which man may not utter. And what you find is for Paul and for all of us, the more real that experience is, the more this life can be lived in the freedom of the gospel. If you went to the third heaven and came back, you would be different. I was actually studying that when my daughter Bonnie came in. It was early in the morning a few days ago. And she came in and plopped down. And I have to be honest, I love her to death. I'm thinking, I'm in the middle of studying. You know that feeling? And then, but you know, I'm, I'm studying about Jesus. <laughs> hey, Bon, hey. Five seconds later, I'm, I'm working on my sermon. Excuse me. You know. Daddy, I'm hungry. <sighs> I 
I, I was very nice to Bonnie. Daddy's working on a sermon. You're up a little earlier. I said it very kindly. And then it was going to be a few more minutes before breakfast. Buries her head, gives me the thumbs down. I'm not suggesting the Holy Spirit spoke to me, but here's what came through my mind. My Lord and Savior was known as someone you could bring the little children to. And I'm studying him, and not just him in general, the gospel. And my own daughter walks in and asks for basically me to take two seconds to pour some food. And I say no. So I got up and I poured her food and sat back down. And I just realized how easy this is to not understand. That I'm so caught up in what I want that even such a small thing seems like a big insurmountable step. So, how does that apply to coveting? Even coveting my time. Even just wanting to do things the way I want to do and seeing other people as either helpers or obstacles. Whereas Jesus never saw people that way. Because Jesus knew who he was. He says over and over, I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. And you and I are in Christ when we know those very same things. Are you and I walking in that manner, willing to die to all the countless things we want in life? Not that we won't have them, or not that there won't be blessings, but we don't need them. We're not aching for them. We're aching for Jesus. I want to conclude with an example I've used many times, but it's so good because Schaefer loves it, so I'm going to use it. But it's just the example of Mary. It's so easy to think, okay, here's a little girl, young woman, and the angel Gabriel shows up and tells her she's with child, the Messiah. So for certain, it makes total sense that she can handle that news. But that's not true. Because you and I have been visited with similar information, right? If you're a Christian, you've been told through the spirit that you have you are at the right you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God that you have all the blessings of Christ we actually know that she gave birth that he lived a perfect life that he dies on the cross that he resurrects in his sins we know the whole story and now we're told we've been caught up in that story that you're completely united to him adopted as sons and daughters that your hope is now in the eternal glory and our job on earth is to bring that into the present. But guess what? The Spirit does it. All we have to do is be active. This is Schaefer's terminology. Actively passive. What does that mean? That means all I have to do is stop wanting everything else to complete me. And trusting what God has for me. That He's the good Father. That I haven't been passed over. That He hasn't ignored my needs. Is that your Heavenly Father? Is that your relationship to Him? Because that is the Gospel. He loves you. He has a future home for you. It's already being prepared. He's deposited his spirit into your soul. The first fruits are already.